This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, daylight savings time is a total drag. That lost hour is an unpleasant adjustment. This daylight savings time, we're going to lessen that pain. You may have lost an hour of sleep, but don't despair. You're about to gain an hour of Second Story. Second Story is a collective of story makers and story lovers working together to build community through the power of storytelling. We host events around Chicago and beyond that fuse page, stage, and sound to deliver a unique literary theatrical experience. Second Story is Chicago's premier storytelling series, performing in Chicago for the past 13 years. Our true stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but always thought-provoking. This Daylight Savings Time, Second Story brings you three stories of leaping forward, from an actress going topless for the first time, to a mother who discovers the ghosts living in her new house. These stories will explore the fear, the excitement, and the thrill of taking a big leap. Our first story comes from Jane DeLobenfels. Born and raised in Iowa, Jane moved to Chicago over 20 years ago. An actress by trade, she's been performing around town ever since. With her story titled Topless, Second Story presents Jane DeLobenfels. It's July of last summer, and I'm in New York City with my best friend, Teresa. We're at the Neue Gallery, a museum of Austrian and German art. I'm in the museum bookstore looking through a book of nude drawings. Teresa asks if I'm going to buy the book. Normally, I wouldn't, but something has shifted in me the last few months. Let's go back to March. It's a cold, rainy spring day in Chicago. I'm sitting in my car on Kenmore Avenue in Edgewater. In 15 minutes, I'm due at a dress rehearsal for the play I'm in, Man from Nebraska. At the moment, I have serious doubts about whether I will find the courage to follow through with what is expected of me. Today is the first day I will do a portion of a scene topless, nothing on from the waist up. I've known this day was coming for a long time. I knew when I auditioned for this play five months ago that it required nudity. When I was offered the role, I almost said no. I wasn't sure when it came down to it that I could actually do it. I'm a modest person when it comes to my body. Cleavage makes me uneasy. I've been acting for 30 years, and I've never been asked to bare my breasts. I guess I assumed at this point that it wasn't ever going to be an issue. <laughs> I didn't come to the decision easily, but in the end, I didn't want to pass up the chance to work on this play with this group of people, so I said yes, trusting I would find the courage to go topless when the time came. This is a beautiful play about a middle-aged man who lives in Nebraska and is going through a crisis of faith. He leaves his wife and job and heads to London to find himself. On the plane ride over, he meets my character, a divorced woman who loves sex, rough sex. 
and is convinced this inexperienced and naive man will be better off after a night in the sack with her. <laughs> the sex scene isn't some romantically lit, gentle scene where things are only suggested. In addition to some sexually graphic language, we make out pretty heavily. I throw him on the bed and straddle him, take off my shirt and my bra, wrap a leather strap around my breasts, and grasping the strap with my hands over my head, I ask him to pinch my nipples. <laughs> Back when I was first cast in this play, I did some serious assessing in front of my full-length mirror. I have a nicely defined waist, no back fat. Not bad for a 45-year-old with two kids. Now, the negatives. My stomach isn't as toned as I would like. If I'm standing straight and holding my breath, it's fine. But if I'm bending or slouching at all, there is definitely flab. My breasts look smaller in the mirror than I thought they were. And I have these wiry black hairs around my nipples. <laughs> I lift up my arms. No matter how often I shave, I can never get all the stubble. These things matter because the theater is the size of a shoebox. The audience will literally be a few feet away from me. The nipple hairs I can pluck. My friend, my friend who owns a spa says, underarm waxing is the only way to get all that hair. But first, I have to grow it out. So for the next three months, I grow it out, which fascinates and disgusts me at the same time. My husband, Jamie, is supportive through the entire process. If he's uncomfortable about me being topless or kissing someone else, he never shows it. Anytime I express doubts or anxiety about the nudity, he eases my fears. Just concentrate on what your character wants in the scene and you'll be fine. And he never misses a chance to compliment my appearance. Oh yeah, you are looking good, my love. You are definitely ready for the topless scene. Without Jamie's unwavering encouragement, this truly would have been a much different experience. The scene has been a blast to rehearse. My scene partner, Chuck, is kind and easygoing and a terrific actor. Once we got past the awkwardness of kissing and groping each other, we've been having a ball. The director wants to wait until dress rehearsal for the nudity, so I haven't had to worry about that. Just lots of kissing and talking dirty and having fun. So, here I am in my car on this gloomy day. Everything is in place for the nudity. Ideal scene partner, wiry black nipple hairs plucked, underarms waxed, black slacks that hit me in just the right spot around my waist, and a bra that hooks in front so I can get in and out of it easily. The plan today is for me to go over the scene with Shauna, our stage manager, first. It will be a closed rehearsal, just Shauna and me until I feel comfortable. The past few days, I've been doing the scene in my bra, hoping that would make the transition to bare breasts a little easier. But now, the thought of taking off my bra is terrifying. 
When I get inside, everyone is acting perfectly normal. <laughs> Drinking coffee and eating donuts. It's just another dress rehearsal to them. Shauna is bustling around. Hi, Jane, I'll meet you on stage in five minutes. Five minutes later, I'm on stage in my costume. Shauna doesn't get on the bed with me and make out, but she stays close and reads Chuck's lines. The first time I take off my bra, the theater feels huge and bright and cold. It isn't the warm, intimate space I've grown to love. Shauna offers suggestions about getting the bra off and on gracefully and maneuvering the leather straps so that my nipples are exposed and my arms are in a V over my head. We do that part of the scene so many times my arms ache. Just when I'm starting to feel less weird about my bare breasts flopping around, Shauna says, okay, should we do the scene with Chuck? Damn it. I realize this is what I've been most afraid of, a man other than my husband seeing my breasts up close. I felt okay in my bra. It's the nipples, I guess. That's really what the issue is. The first time Chuck and I do the scene, I bungle the leather straps and my breasts are hanging out in a weird way and my arms are tangled and I'm completely flustered. And then, I can't get the bra back on. The straps are twisted and my hands are shaking and I can't hook it. Chuck and Shauna are patient and professional about everything. Chuck's character is embarrassed by the nudity, so he tries not to look at my breasts. His reactions are hilarious and lovely. The show is a hit. People love it and we are selling out. I look forward to it every night. I love the play, the cast, the role. It's what being in a play is at its very best. I heard the word liberating a lot throughout this process. People told me the nudity would be liberating and that there would come a point where I wouldn't think twice about it. But every time I unhook my bra, I feel a lurch in my stomach and just for a moment I think, Yes, I am. And I do it. That feeling never goes away. It gets easier, but it's never effortless. I mourned the end of this show in a profound way. I loved being part of a great work of art, and I loved the camaraderie backstage. I missed frolicking around on stage with Chuck and saying things like, I want you to fuck me. Pinch my nipples, baby. And I have to admit, it was gratifying to hear nice things about my body. Like when my wonderfully brazen friend Cheryl came to see the play and yelled across the lobby afterwards, your tits looked great! <laughs> also, I missed taking my bra off, not in an exhibitionist way but because every single time it made my stomach lurch, and I still did it. So, now it's July, and I'm at this museum in New York with Teresa. The book I'm considering buying is 
Gustav Klimt's Erotic Sketches. The current exhibit is Vienna, 1900, Style and Identity. It explores the redefinition of individual identity in the modern age. I'm bowled over by the drawings and paintings, especially by Gustav Klimt. I'm familiar with his work, but I'm seeing paintings and sketches that are a revelation to me. In one of the galleries, there is a series of his sketches of women masturbating. I can't stop looking at them. In the book, there are drawings of women and men making love, women with other women, and women masturbating. Most of them are in pencil or charcoal, some with colored crayons. They are gorgeous and explicit. I decide to buy the book. At home, I keep it in a drawer in my bedside table and get it out every couple of weeks. I see something new every time I look through it. The way a spine curves, position of a hand, a use of color I hadn't noticed before. I study the model's faces. They are shameless, filled with ecstasy and longing. I don't know how they felt about posing, what they gained or lost, if they had devoted husbands at home. But I'm grateful they did it. The redefinition of individual identity. I realize we get the opportunity to do this throughout our lives, to redefine ourselves by uncovering a part of our identity that has been dormant meeting the right people at the right time, or finding joy and courage in unexpected places. That was Jane DeLobenfels. Jane will be on stage in Chicago, starring in Tennessee Williams' The Night of the Iguana at the Artistic Home beginning on March 24th. Our second story of the podcast is a second story classic. It was written and performed by Nadine C. Warner, an award-winning writer and performer based in Chicago. She's worked as a lawyer, an IT consultant, an admissions director, a TV producer, and finally as a creative director for the Bricolage Group, a corporate communications company that she founded with her partner, Lori. She's been performing with Second Story since 2008. This story was recorded in April of 2009 at the Morseland Cafe in Rogers Park. With her story titled Homo Sweet Home, Second Story presents Nadine C. Warner. When the fire trucks race along Tui, or if we shut the front door too hard, we know we'll need to straighten the family pictures on the wall. When the temperature drops below 30, we know that we'll need extra blankets for the mysterious gale force winds which race down our hallway. And when we find brown pellets in our utility room, we know our furry little friends have come back for a visit. For the past three years, this Rogers Park house has been our home though it was not our first choice. With the recent adoption of our son, Nick, we had outgrown our condo. 
We had our eyes set on this fancy Italianate with grand stairs that led to double front doors. Our realtor raved about the cathedral-like 14-foot ceilings and upgraded chef kitchen, complete with wolf stove, sub-zero refrigerator, and imported granite countertop. And through the 20-foot beveled glass window, a professionally landscaped backyard. It was perfect if you were a gay man who loved to entertain. All I could see were the gaps between the stairs that little kids could, hop, could fall through and a huge shatter me sign on the window for various objects such as rocks, balls, and other people's children. <laughs> Sensing our fading interest, she mentioned, I do have another listing, more of a handyman special. Bring your decorating ideas. <laughs> Lori and I were game. It was a white Victorian with a rotting picket fence and a front gate we had to use our whole body to open. We stepped into the front hallway, taking a moment to adjust our eyes from the bright sun to the 1970s-era dark brown wood paneling that stretched all the way to the second floor. Um, uh, uh, Lori, <laughs> uh, Lori nudged me and pointed at these alternating black and brown stains on the pink shag carpeting, and I muttered, I don't wanna know. <laughs> We made our way to the dining room, which had a ceiling so low I had trouble navigating, and found ourselves in the kitchen, where our realtor gave a Vanna White sweep of her arms against the zigzag Escher-inspired homemade cabinetry, and these come with the house. But by far, the best part of the tour was the basement, with its moldy drywall and scurrying centipedes and termite-ridden main support beam. The kicker? an open shower at the bottom of the stairs next to a live wire. We made an offer the next day. Clearly, we have a soft spot for things in need, having built our lives on those things that other people couldn't take care of, like our adopted son, our animal shelter mutt, and even each other. The house had simply become too much for the 87-year-old owner, Will Struff, to handle on his own. But he was quite a character. He would say things to us like, what are you or both of you doing later tonight? <laughs> it was a little humorous and a little disturbing. But I think he was a gentleman at heart. His eyes would grow moist at the mention of his wife, Josephine, who had passed away three years prior. She loved this house. We putting we had into it. He did warn us of the shortcuts that he and his wife had taken, like laying a thin layer of concrete over sand for the basement floor, and laying hardwood only at the perimeter of the rooms, putting carpet over plywood for the center. Because, as he explained, with some boys you just had to make do. Who, boy, did they give this place a workout, racing up and down the stairs like a pack of wild dogs sometimes. <laughs> Still, he pulled out a creased picture of a man in uniform with his arms around a young woman with an open smile. When my Josephine wanted a fur coat. I got her that fur coat. We didn't have a lot of fancy things, but she worked hard. She deserved it. They had made this house a home, and now it was our turn. Our general contractor was eager, but inexperienced. He painted our condo, so we figured, how hard can rehabbing a 100-year-old Victorian be? 
Yosef, a square Polish man with a series of smashed consonants for a last name, had great confidence in his abilities because everything was, no problem, I know a guy. <laughs> Including a plumber who would install the toilet on the wrong wall, a carpenter who would install the hardwood in the kitchen without a subfloor, you know, for aesthetic reasons, and an electrician who would redo the wiring without grounding it. Our eager beaver started demolition immediately after we closed and found a treasure trove in the basement. 1970s Playboy magazines, Grateful Dead, con uh, Grateful Dead t shirts, and film, conta film containers stuffed with pot. <laughs> but after the first week, he claimed the basement was haunted and refused to work after dark. Apparently, flickering lights and disappearing tools were a problem. Now, I don't know whether it was Gloria Swanson's ghost who had followed us from our last apartment right around the corner from SNA Studios, or the Civil War soldier who'd followed us home from New Orleans after tugging on Lori's blanket in the middle of the night. And I didn't care. I marched downstairs and told them it was not the time. You have to be very firm with ghosts. No spiritual squatters were gonna keep us from our dream home. Uh, no spiritual squatters were gonna keep us from our dream home. Uh, we called our, to stay on schedule, we called, our, we called our backup. So we called our inside gays, the first of our friends to meet Nick, who picked wall colors and bathroom fixtures. Then we called our outside gays, Nick's godparents, who weeded, mowed, planted, and took great care with Josephine's prize-winning rose garden. Three months later than planned, we moved in, which is not bad as I understand. <laughs> By the first night, our movers had scuffed the flat paint on the walls, we could see the basement through the kitchen floor, and the hot water pipes shook the foundation every time we turned on a faucet. Plus, I could smell myself through my sweats. And yet, I was happy. I leaned over to Nick, perched in his baby seat on an unopened box, and said, this is it, kiddo. You'll bring your college friends home for Thanksgiving here. That was the night I met Josephine Streff. Nick's crying wakes me up, and I, I go first to the bathroom before going into his room. And as I walk down the hallway, I see Lori go in. I say, oh, you got him? When I go to his room a few minutes later, Nick has stopped crying and is back asleep. And it's only then that I realized that the person I'd spoken to had been two inches shorter than I am, and that Lori had still been in bed when I'd gotten up. Now, I don't know what Josephine said to Nick that night. Maybe this was a house full of love and he would be very happy here. Or maybe that his moms just needed their rest. <laughs> Whatever it is, he has slept through the night ever since. I think Josephine is looking out for us. I do love this house, ghosts and all, and have great visions of raising our family here. At least I did, until Lori and I lost our job ember. So long sushi lunches, overseas vacations, flagstone for the patio. These days, we prioritize bills on the dining room table, the 6K property tax bill, the 7K estimate for the moldy basement, the mortgage, and oh my God, we're poor. I stop 
punching numbers into the calculator. It feels like a shell game, moving money from one account to the next, trying to keep the balances above zero. Sweetie, we're not poor. We're not? No, we just have to be a bit more frugal. She picks up the basement estimate. Demo, tuck pointing, electrical. I bet we could do this ourselves. I eye her skeptically. What, she says, we are butch lesbians. <laughs> this house is homo sweet home. <laughs> According to the embroidered plaque that we hung on our first night, it is the place where our recently departed dog made deep grooves into the hardwood floor in her haste to greet the mailman. The place where Nick's growth has been etched into the kitchen wall. We have left our mark. I watch Nick playing with his trains on the floor between us. I made him a promise that he would grow up here. And now I don't know if I can keep the first tear rolls down my cheek, and then the second, and the next thing you know, I'm half sobbing, half hyperventilating. I don't want to lose our home. Then Nick lets out this yelp, startling both of us, his eyes going wide, and his trains clatter to the floor while he scrambles onto my lap. And I, what is it, sweetie? You see, I'm blinking through tears, trying to, trying to follow his sightline, but, but I can't see anything. And he runs to the back stairwell, clearly trying to follow whatever he saw. Where'd they go? Where did who go, Nick? Where'd the boys go? Is that Josephine again? Sharing what the house had been? This playland for kids, even while their parents struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Maybe it's a reminder that history repeats itself. That she and Will once sat where we do now. Or maybe it's a reminder that this life is much richer than we realize. Nick resumes playing with his trains, and Lori closes her hands over mine. We can do this. And I think she's right. We can. Thank you. That was Nadine C. Warner. For more information about Nadine, or for links to her own writing, visit secondstory.com. Our final story of the podcast comes from Eric Hazen. Eric has been a collaborator with Second Story for the past two years and has become an invaluable member of the organization. He's currently pursuing an MFA in creative fiction writing at Columbia College Chicago and lives right by the lake in Rogers Park. Originally from Muskegon, Michigan, Eric has lived in Chicago for the past five years. This story was recorded live at Second Story's New Year's Eve bash in 2013. With his story titled CDH, Second Story presents Eric Hazen. I kept waiting for him to open his eyes. My newborn nephew, Lucas, less than two days old, 
was laying at the end of the U-shaped neonatal intensive care unit with his eyes closed. There were tubes everywhere, an oxygen tube wrapped around his head, an IV line ran directly to a vein in his head, a tube ran down his tiny throat. It was taped to his face so he wouldn't pull it out. Sometimes he gagged. And the surgeons and the doctors and the nurses all talked in these percentages and acronyms that I didn't want to understand. I just wanted him to open his eyes. It seemed so important that he open his eyes. Two days before, nothing had seemed important enough to be taken seriously. See, I was 17 and stoned and had no idea where I was going. I dropped out of high school. I lived in my parents' basement, and I really liked my parents' basement. (laughs) My mom kept signing me up to take the GED, and I kept coming up with excuses not to do it. Because the first time I'd tried, I got to the algebra portion of the test and just gave up. The only things I'd finished in the last two years were bong hits and beers. And on the day that Lucas was born, I was sitting on my parents' front porch, finishing another beer and waiting for my weed guy to call. Well, I was supposed to be waiting for my brother Joel to call and tell me it was time to come to the hospital and see the baby. I was kind of hoping the weed guy would call first. That way, that way I could pick up Still have time to get stoned before I saw the kid and then had to go to work at PetSmart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, my big responsibilities there included scooping guinea pig shit, uh, counting dead fish in the tanks at the end of the night, and trying my best to smile when customers' dogs pissed on my leg. Yeah, you'd want to be stoned too. But when my phone finally rang, it was Joel. Hey, dude, I said, trying to sound excited. Dude, my brother said. Dude, can, can you get here quick? See, the thing about my brother is that he probably wasn't ready to be a dad. I mean, he probably got fucked up too much, too, but the big thing is I don't think there are too many people that are ready to be a father at 16 years old. Yeah, Joel was 16, He'd been on his way to driver's training when he found out he was having a kid. He got me stoned in the woods behind our folks' house to tell me, Mom and Dad are going to kill me, he said. I made it to the hospital in 15 minutes, and when the thick, wide doors to the maternity ward opened, I saw Joel sitting at the end of a long hallway. He was in scrubs. His head was in his hands, My mom and dad were on either side of him. My mom had her arm around his shoulders. (laughs) A nurse sitting at a reception desk at the front of of the ward said, Sir, you need to sign in. She clearly didn't like the look of me, so I ignored her. And the thing is, Joel had looked up and was moving down the hallway toward me. And I stepped past that nurse with the clipboard and stepped into the hardest hug I have ever shared with my little brother. There was nothing to say. I wrapped my arms around him, and he cried these thick, heavy sobs that started in his guts and shook his whole body. 
and I cried because I'd never seen him cry like that before. This doctor approached us, and so I let go of Joel so he could hear what the doctor had to say, and it felt like the cruelest thing I had ever done to him. We're going to be moving him to the medevac chopper in a couple minutes, the doctor said. You can come back in now. Joel pushed through the door, and the nurse with a clipboard made it clear that I wasn't allowed to follow him. And on the other side of that door, while my parents, who were maybe one or two screaming matches away from a divorce, would awkwardly try to explain what had gone wrong without actually looking at or speaking to each other, Joel would pick up his son for the first time. His son with this wispy blonde hair like his and a dimple on his left cheek like his mom. And completely unsure how to hold a baby, Joel would try to hold him in front of Jessica's face. It it had been an emergency C-section and her vision was completely blurred. Let me see him before you take him, she said. Please, I can't see him. Lucas was in surgery within an hour of being born. So I wasn't allowed in that room with my brother, and sitting in the waiting room with my parents was not a place I wanted to be. So I did what I always did. Got fucked up and went to work. I got bit by a guinea pig. (laughs) Accidentally let the parakeets escape from their cage. And lost my patience with this toddler that couldn't decide which fucking goldfish she wanted. (laughs) And later that night... Halfway through counting all those dead fish in their tanks, I dropped my net and my clipboard, and I walked out. I got in my car, I took a deep breath, and I drove back to the hospital. When I was halfway there, my phone rang. It was my weed guy. I let it ring. I walked into the waiting room and found my parents there. My mom had her head on my dad's shoulder. They were actually holding hands. And it was the first time in so long that I'd seen them touch each other. They stood up as I walked toward them, and my dad put his hands on my shoulders the way he always would when he was trying to figure out if I was stoned or high. He looked right into my eyes, and they were clear. I'm glad you're here, he said. And around 3 a.m. after his surgery, after they ran all his tubes, after they had him stabilized, the nurses finally led us into the NICU to see Lucas and Jess and Joel. And we all gathered around his incubator and looked for any sign of movement. He still hadn't opened his eyes. And we stayed there around that incubator for three months. When you spend that long around a hospital, you start clinging to all these clinical terms, these shorthand ways of explaining all the confusing and terrible things that will not stop coming at you. You get these sanitized acronyms that don't really mean anything. Ours was CDH, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. We repeated it like a mantra when his temperature wouldn't stabilize, when he caught an infection, when they had to run a central line through his leg, when they wouldn't let us touch him. All we could say was CDH, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. We said it to the phone calls and the cards and the emails, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, CDH. It was so clean, so bloodless, 
So much easier than saying that he had been born with a hole in his diaphragm and all of his insides had pushed up through that hole, displacing his heart, putting so much pressure on his tiny lungs that they hadn't developed completely, that his first breath was through a machine, that the doctors had to cut him open and put everything back where it belonged. C-D-H. And each time we said it, we moved just a little bit closer to each other, just a little bit closer to being a family again. The NICU at the Philadelphia Children's Hospital became like an intensive care unit for my entire family. C-D-H. I said it to myself when I was sitting next to his incubator, looking at those tiny fingers and toes, these fingers and toes that I was falling in love with, and those closed eyes, those eyes I wanted so badly to open, that I'd been so patient for. And when they opened, what would they see? What would my nephew see when he looked at me? And what if they never opened at all? What was the moment that you realized things could be different? That things could be better? The moment you met your partner? The moment you came out? The moment your son or daughter walked through the front door from school, safe and sound? The moment you stood up or let go or fought back? The moment you asked for help or realized or finally understood. For me? For me, it was the moment during that third month in the NICU. It was late afternoon, the sun was out, the hospital was quiet. I slipped into the NICU and sat down in one of those creaky wooden rocking chairs that they have in the NICU, right next to Lucas. The heat lamp over his incubator buzzed. This steady beat counted each of his heartbeats, each breath. It was the moment that I leaned back in the rocking chair, and the chair's legs gave out this loud groan, and Lucas turned his head toward the sound. It was the moment that I rocked forward again, leaned over the edge of the incubator. It was the moment that I looked down, and there they were. These huge, round, bright blue eyes looking right at me. They were wide open.
That was Eric Hazen. He often serves as the sound designer for our Saturday Night Stories and Spirits series. This has been the Daylight Savings Time Second Story Podcast. We really hope it put a spring in your step. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to see you at a Second Story show. Second Story will be at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park on March 10th and 11th, at Inspiration Kitchen in Garfield Park on March 15th, and at Revolution Brewery in Logan Square on March 24th. For tickets or for more information about Second Story or the tellers you heard on this podcast, visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. Podcast support from Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Bobby Budrisky, the Second Story Publishing Committee, Nick Kawahara, Mikael Fixel and Seeking Wonderland, Eric Hazen, Danielle Ezel, David Adams, C.P. Chang, Sherry Pentamone, and myself. I'm Ozzy Totten, and this is Second Story. Have an excellent daylight savings time. Okay. Well, we're still okay. I didn't think this part through. Now don't forget to set your clocks. <laughs>